Tomorrow we have a change in time. I think you have the schedule, so you know this. But I'll remind us, uh, 11 o'clock tomorrow, we did it uh, that hour instead of one, so that you might have a free afternoon if you want to go hiking or somewhere or do something uh, and have all afternoon to do it, or most of the afternoon. Nelson promised he wouldn't speak long, so uh, give you more time to go do something else. <coughs> Certainly had a nice time last night out around the bonfire. I guess you can't say anything great or special was done, but it was just nice to fellowship a little and sit around and enjoy the fire and just be together. I certainly enjoyed it. Look forward to more of it. Now before the sermon, we have special music again. This one is is entitled, Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho. It'll be done by the choir and the children along with, and there is a foreword to it that will be read by James and Sean before they start the music. of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night to do according to all that is written thereon. For then you shall make your way prosperous. For then you shall have good success. Be of good courage. Be not afraid for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go.
second law or second coming or second doing of the law, uh, perhaps named that because Moses reiterated the law, didn't bring a different law or a new one, uh, but he did uh, go back over the same law. It's in Deuteronomy, I mean in Exodus 20, and here we'll find it in Deuteronomy 5. So God caused the law to be repeated or brought back a second time uh, in Moses' uh, time. A few things to think about in this book, which might give it more meaning for us, is that there are 80 quotations from the book of Deuteronomy in the New Testament. 80, that's a lot of quotes. And when Satan tempted Christ after his fast, Christ answered four of the temptations that Satan brought with quotes from Deuteronomy. Not somewhere else, but from Deuteronomy. So really, Moses was giving a summary here of the things that had gone on during his tenure with the Israelites. And Deuteronomy is really a series, primarily, of speeches that he gave to them, sermons, if you will, uh, about their past and the things that they had been through together, he was reiterating, bringing to remembrance what they had been through. Why? Because he had written the other books, the other four at the beginning of the Bible, to explain God's religion to them in the Old Testament form with all the sacrifices and the various things that were done. But he used this one to start moving them forward. It was to look forward to where they were going. They'd been wandering at this point for about 40 years, and most of their carcasses had died, and he was speaking to another generation of people here and reminding them of what their parents had gone through and what they were heading into because he wanted them to know very well what was ahead of them. Now, God is that way. He wants us to know what is ahead of us. So the whole Bible is written about, A, how to live, but B, where you're headed, where you're going, what to expect in the future. And he goes back to us and gives us a history of the past, so that we might learn some lessons from our forefathers and not repeat them. And he gave these lessons to the younger generation primarily. Some may not have died yet, were about to fall over and die because they weren't going in. <clears throat> but he wanted them to know what they were going to face and why they had had adversity and why their Fathers and mothers had had adversity and died and couldn't go in. And even reminds them that he wasn't going to get to go in because he had made one mistake. And God penalized him for that. So, our sins, our attitudes, our rebellions are not without consequence. Uh, God is always there. He knows everything that goes on. And he knows how it's done and in what attitude it's done. 
and he exacts penalties here and there as he sees fit. And we have to respond to those in the correct way. And Israel did not always do that. I've got one good example of that we'll probably go through as we get into this. The first 33 chapters were apparently indeed written by Moses, and it may be that the last chapter, 34, uh, was written by Joshua uh, after Moses' death as a tribute to Moses and also a summary of his life and the things he had done. I don't think he wrote that, more than likely, but Joshua wrote the book of Joshua so he could have very easily put a finishing touch on the book of Deuteronomy. But in this, in that there are that many quotes from the New Testament, we have to grasp that Moses, who had been face-to-face with Christ on the plain of Mamre and and had had a close relationship with him, uh, communicated with him quite a bit, and Christ called him his friend. He didn't say that of many people from the Old Testament. In the New, he offered friendship to all of us there just before his death. But he hadn't been friends with many. He had to have the upgrade of God's Spirit before he would dare to offer us friendship. Because there, he said, a servant doesn't know what his master is thinking or is doing. And he doesn't need to know. Because he's not kin to or next to the master. He's just a servant to do what he sold. But he says, I am going to offer you friendship. I think it was a long time in my life before I really recognized what he was doing there. Because I had always thought, wouldn't it be nice to be like Moses, to be like Abraham, to actually be someone God would call a friend? And I didn't think that I would in any way ever aspire to that, because I didn't figure I was quality enough to be a friend of God. But then when he gave us the Holy Spirit, he gave us more help and more attitude toward that, and then offered it. So it is there for you and me to be called a friend of God. And I think that's something that we need to, in our own lives, pray about, is that we please Him, and not only be a pleasing son or daughter, but to please Him as a friend would please Him. That needs to be very high in our minds, We need to think about it quite a bit. Is the way I'm acting, is the way I'm living, is the way I'm responding the way God would want a friend to respond? That he would want a family member to respond? Uh, Because it's easy for us to get lost in our own goals and desires and things and not pay enough attention to the relationship. Now, Moses understood a lot of where New Testament Christianity was going because many of the quotes from the book of Deuteronomy are very similar to the things that Christ himself said when he was walking the earth. And Moses even mentions the relationship of loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, we might give Christ credit for saying that first, and indeed he did, But he said it to Moses a long time before he said it to the New Testament church. 
So Moses was caught up on, if you will, more than most of the people from the Old Testament, and even more than most of the prophets and leading men of the Old Testament. God gave him a lot of favor because of Moses' overall attitudes and his willingness, his sacrifice, his determination to lead them in spite of themselves, (laughs) and all the things that Moses went through for God and God's people. And he is a personification in many respects of a relationship first with God and secondarily with the people, his neighbors, fellow Israelites, and so on. Uh, So he was living New Testament theology in most respects. He had that much understanding. So when we approach the things he says back then, we need to understand that he had an understanding of what was to come. Now, he does that for us, and he said that these things back here, as I've said many times, are quoted. These things were written for those of us upon upon whom the ends of the world have come. So God prepared us way ahead of time, and part of the lessons we need to know today as New Testament Christians are from the Old Testament, and not only is Deuteronomy quoted 80 times, but I have heard it said, I haven't counted them, or even maybe would recognize some of the quotes from the old in the new. But it has been said by scholars that about a third of the New Testament is quoted from the Old Testament. And maybe not in the exact words, but in what is meant and what is said are quotes from the Old Testament. Paraphrases, if you will. But very similar and had the same content. So, when you read Deuteronomy, you're reading a preview of Christ in the New Testament. Now, some things to consider here is that they were standing there as he gave these various speeches, preparing to go into the land of promise. Now, these speeches may have been given over a considerable period of time, for that matter, because he didn't probably sit down on a rock and give them every one of these in one day. There's too much there for him to have done that. So, he had in mind where they were headed. He knew he was not going into the promised land. He knew Joshua would lead them in and says it here. So, he was doing his best to love them and give them what he could to help them as they went in. Now, he had been through the experience of helping them come out of Mitzrayim, across the Red Sea, their rebellions over and over, and their repentances somewhat. But he'd seen all of that happen and knew that it was not helpful or a good way and people weren't responding right. Israel, for most of their history, never did and wound up getting divorced from Christ because they went a-whoring after other nations and their gods and their customs and everything that the other people were. So they didn't put God and His laws first much at all. And Moses knew that up to that point, and there was going to be a whole lot more of that to follow. 
So he was trying to prepare them so that they wouldn't go there, but then they went anyway. You know, people are kind of like that. Don't touch the stove. They'll do it anyway. Then they learn that dad or mom was right. I shouldn't have touched the stove. And then dad or mom came and helped them and put it in cold water or whatever they did to help assuage the burn. <clears throat> so they loved us. And they were doing it out of love, telling us don't touch the stove. But we thought, hmm, I know better than that. I'm curious. Oops, I'm not curious anymore. But it never quite gets to our brain that dad and mom are generally always right. I had somebody tell me, even today, that their kid was acting like a teenager uh, this morning. Uh, you know, they, they don't learn and never forget. They learn a little, and they try again, and they learn a little, and they try again. And if they're able from their deathbed at 80 or 90, they still try. That's just the way human beings are because we're selfish to the absolute core, and we will have our way. And we have to get over that and do it God's way and according to the principles of how it impacts others as our friends, neighbors, and relatives, because it is important that we treat them as good as we would treat ourselves. And that doesn't come easy, because we tend to be a bit narcissistic, a bit uh, rebellious, selfish, egotistical, and so on. So it's difficult. And Moses recognized all that. So he reminded them over and over through this book what their parents had done, what they probably would do, and warned them against it. Kind of reminds me of the old story about the Southern Baptist preacher. He kept telling about his congregation had the prones. And he, These people have the prones. Somebody says, well, what are the prones? He said, they're prone to sin. <laughs> You've all heard that one, I'm sure. Some of you younger ones might not have. But uh, he knew people. And he had been through an awful lot with them over a period of 40 years plus the time even in Egypt. So, this is all about that. So, where, what was he preparing for as we look at it? He was preparing for them to go into the land that God had promised them. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was what they were just on the verge of doing as we get into the first chapter. Uh, he was also preparing us to go into the physical land as well, to a land uninhabited, that is Jerusalem, and also Zion. Zion is inhabited somewhat, but he never said Zion wouldn't be, he said Jerusalem wouldn't be. Now that's kind of funny, I just had that thought, there's Jerusalem in the Middle East, the city is inhabited, but Zion is not. There's not anyone that lives where they say Zion is. It's a graveyard. There's people there, but they don't know much. I looked at it. It's down the hill, pretty steep, 
And it's just a graveyard. That's what they say Zion is. So it's just the opposite of God, the way God says it would be. Anyway, he's preparing us to go into physical Jerusalem and ultimately Zion uh, when it's cleared out and there's nobody there but us. And here we are in preparation, sitting on the outside of the Canaan Mountains. Uh, the Canaan Mountains are not actually referred to in the Bible. I looked it up. Uh, it says the area of Israel or Palestine today that has deserts and mountains and so on, but it doesn't mention any mountains because it occurred to me. I went there and I visited all over the place and I knew about Mount Carmel and some of two or three other mountains, but I hadn't, I didn't see the Canaan Mountains. Well, they aren't there. <laughs> they just aren't there. It was the land of Canaan, so a mountain that was in it might have been mountains of Canaan if you stretch it that way. But it isn't there. It's here, but that wasn't theirs per se. Anyway, he's got us here on the edge, like Moses was with the people on the other side, Jordan, preparing us to take over that area to build his temple and his city. So we're in the same physical situation they were in. Now, he was also preparing them a great deal spiritually because there's a lot of instruction in here about spirit and attitude toward God and man. So he was preparing them both physically and spiritually. And what he says here is also to prepare us not just to go into the original promised land, but toward Christianity, toward the spiritual promised land, if you will. How to be Christians. There's a lot of that in here. And of building the latter temple or church. So, those are good ideas, thoughts, and principles to keep in mind as we examine this. But overall, that's what God was using Moses for. Not just a prophet to those people, but a prophet and of prophet to us. So, I started to get into it yesterday. Let's go ahead and get there. Uh, this was spoken on to all Israel on the side of Jordan before you go into the promised land. And the 11 days journey uh, from Horeb to Seir, Mount Seir, under Kadesh Barnea. So uh, they were some days away from certain land landmarks, but still on this side Jordan, or the side before you go in. And it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that would have been around January, February, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Eternal had given them him in commandment to them. Uh, 11th month would be around January, February. First month comes after March, then into April for the first month. So he was preparing them to go in at Passover time. <clears throat> now, after he had slain Sihon, the king of the Amorites, which dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, which dwelt as Ashtaroth and Edre, on this side Jordan, in the land of Moab, began Moses to declare this law. 
Now, this is kind of interesting, I think. I don't know that they have a direct tie, but Ogden is the capital of Utah, and it is also the capital of the IRS in this part of the country. <laughs> so, I've just called it Ogden's Den, the den of uh, Moab, Ammon, and the IRS is the capital of Utah. But also, he says, in the land of Moab. And there are other scriptures which lead me to believe that many of the Mormons uh, are Ammonites, Moabites, and Edomites. Uh, they are the ones that are living in the land of promise for the most part right now. Now, for the most part, they consider themselves Israelites in some form or fashion. But when you go through Isaiah 15 and 16 and some of these uh, places in the Bible, it talks of Ammon and Moab, dwell, and Esau even, dwelling in the promised land. Of course, Lot was a, uh, I guess a nephew it was, of Abraham. And his daughters, of course, went to him after Sodom and Gomorrah blew up thinking they, he was the only man left on earth and that they'd better have a child through him or mankind would come to an end. So there's where polygamy started after Sodom and Gomorrah. And that has been a basic tenet of the Mormon church from Joseph Smith on down. They did deny it or try to stop it because they couldn't get statehood without it. But it's still believed in to a great degree and Tens of thousands of Mormons in Utah still practice it, and then a lot on the southern border and down in Mexico and so on and so forth. Uh, I don't know of any group of people on earth that do polygamy or still even believe in it, nominally, whether they'll say it or not, than the Mormons. So some of the characteristics of Ammon and Moab and Esau and Edomite uh, are still carried by the Mormon people today. And I suspect the demon that started the Mormon church, Moroni, a uh, fallen angel, uh, who instructed Joseph Smith, uh, may have been one who had been around the Ammonites and Moabites and Edomites. Uh, and I say, and I think I can, uh, truly say, that Moroni was a demon because most of the teaching that Joseph Smith passed along is demonic doctrine, such as Sunday worship, Christmas and Easter. He passed along a lot of the stuff from Satan's religions that were already there in the religions, and then he added some things, uh, such as polygamy, which the New Testament clearly teaches against, uh, God allowed it, Christ said, in the Old Testament, but in the beginning it was not so. He intended man and woman to marry and stay married till death, and there not to be anyone else there, Adam and Eve. And later on, because of the hardness of their hearts, is the way Christ put it, he allowed them to have more than one wife. It wasn't his intent, hadn't been from the beginning, and then he said it was for the hardness of your hearts. Well, can you read that and say, well, I guess I'm hard-hearted, I want four wives. 
No, you should read that and say, I guess I shouldn't be hard-hearted and I only ought to do it the way God originally intended. But that's not the way Joseph Smith thought. It's not the way he was inspired or taught by Moroni. So I know Moroni was not righteous or he would have given righteous doctrines, if you follow. So I'm not knocking Joseph Smith or the Mormons in a wrong way uh, any more than I would the Baptists, the Methodists, or anything else. Uh, they have their own thing. The problem is, the Book of Mormon has very little to do with the Bible, and they look to it more than they do the Bible. So I'm not trying to knock their religion more than any other religion. It's just that you find things in here uh, where they were going through the land on the way, and the Ammonites and Moabites and Edomites will find uh, were involved, and I think that they certainly are today, <clears throat> thinking they're Israelites, but are not, which is in contrast to America, which is Ephraim of the, of the Israelites, among other tribes, I'm sure, that are scattered here. Overall, America is Israelite, but they don't think they are. The Mormons aren't, but think they are. It's just the opposite. So nobody's right. <laughs> Either way. Anyway, uh, there they were. And Moses says, The Lord our God, verse 6, spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You've dwelt long enough in this mount. Turn you and take your journey and go to the mount of the Amorites and do all the places near there, in the plain and the hills and in the vale and in the south, and by the seaside to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon under the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, when they went into the land, when you get to the book of Joshua, there were all kinds of ites already dwelling there. Amorites, Hittites, uh, other ites that they were supposed to drive out of the land. Uh, so here, they're going, he's going through some of those lands to get to Canaan, and Canaan uh, was a black people, and they were already dwelling at Jerusalem when Abraham found the city that God had sent him to find. And Abraham settled there, and the black people intermarried with the Israelites to some degree, and yet Israel became dominant there. That's another interesting sidelight, is uh, Mormonism has always been down on Black people. They used to say it very openly. They'll still say it somewhat covertly, but because of anti-racialism in the, this country, they will allow people into, black people, into the Mormon church, but as I understand it, they won't let them be priests. I could be wrong on that, maybe in some few instances. I don't, I don't know. But generally... Uh, there was some racism there that is kind of hushed up, but still pretty much believed by the hierarchy and the doctrines that they don't talk about. But I've talked to enough of them over the years that I know those things are still there. And I see it in people that are pretty good friends of mine <clears throat> that I've known over the years. We lived among the Mormons in southern Idaho as well as here. 
And uh, I know that they have some pretty strong racial prejudices, not precedences, under the surface. So everybody has these things. But did part of that maybe come all the way back from, I don't know, uh, the time that Abraham went there and the Canaanites were dwelling there, because it was called the land of Canaan. It could have come from Civil War time. That's when Joseph Smith began the Mormon church, uh, and racism was very strong and rife at that time, and that could have been part of the influence right there. I don't know. Uh, but it's interesting that all these tie-ins are here with the peoples that are mentioned and here in the end time, they're mentioned as being in the promised land. And if they're here, who are they? We just have to look at who's here and say they must fit what God is teaching or saying here. That'll all come out in the wash. We'll see. Anyway, to Lebanon and unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Uh, I think that the Colorado River may have been the original Euphrates means cold water, and the Colorado River coming out of the Rockies is cold. Uh, it also has the heavy rapids that everybody knows of and likes to raft in uh, the waters of strife, uh, boiling over the rocks. And those are, if you read the dimensions in Joshua, uh, they go down too from Jerusalem, uh, as we know it, to the Colorado River and to Great Salt Lake, as I said yesterday. That's where those dimensions take you if you convert it into miles and chart it out in the land in Utah, Arizona. Anyway, that's just an aside. Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Eternal swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and to their seed after them. So he's telling these this younger generation, this is what they are to do. And I spoke to you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear you myself alone. Now this refers back to where he was spending day and night counseling people who had problems or disagreements with each other and so on. And his father-in-law says, why don't you appoint some people to take care of some of this self, so that you don't even have time to sleep or eat. They're after you day and night. There's so many of them. And he took that advice, so that's what he's referring back to. He said, The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you're this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. That's quite a few people to oversee by yourself and make decisions on everything that comes up. Um, the Lord your God of your fathers make you a thousand times so many more as you are and bless you as he has promised you, like the sands of the sea, the stars of the heavens. Uh, even after all his trouble with them, he still wanted to see more of them. Now, that's some kind of godly love there <laughs> after, after all he went through. How can I myself alone bear your encumbrance? What do you consider an encumbrance? Uh, something that encumbers you, uh, gets in your way. And in a way, they were in his way. He, he went the way to the dining room and they were there. He went the way to the bed and they were there waiting uh, to say something 
through his life. So your encumbrance and your burden and your strife. So they were also a burden to him as well as a burden to themselves. And they fought among themselves a lot, the strife. So he was dealing with that among, as they left Mitzrayim, it appears to have been around three, three and a half million people, counting women and children. And that's a lot of strife. That's a lot of encumbrance. That's a lot of argument and people not getting along with each other. So it was a heavy burden. And you answered me and said, oh, wait a minute, uh, his father-in-law had said, Take you wise men and under, uh, an understanding and known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. So he said, Consider the men of your tribes and who seems to have wisdom and understanding and can deal with people and all the qualities that are needed to be someone responsible for helping other people. So look out and find among yourselves that kind, uh, and I will make them rulers over you. Now, some in the New Testament say God doesn't want rulers over us, and we don't even need preachers, because we all uh, are capable and are Christians ourselves, and so we don't need anyone. Despite New Testament, which says, how can you learn without a preacher? And I've said, over you preachers, and you must pay attention to those that, ooh, what? Rule over you, there in Hebrews. They don't like those scriptures, and they don't quote them. In fact, they ignore them. But God started that way back here, that, he, that they would have rulers that he would appoint over them, and they were men that they themselves had recommended. Maybe he didn't accept all of them, but some he did. And they were to do as those judges said. When you go for counsel, you are bound to a certain degree to follow that counsel. You needed it, you went for it, and then if you didn't like it, you rejected it. That's happened in my understanding in decades in the church, is that we had lots of congregations around the country, and people would have a problem, and they wanted a judgment on it, but they wanted that judgment to go the way they wanted it to go, so that they would have an excuse for doing it the way they wanted to. They wanted a selfish judgment. I want you to tell me what I want to hear. Itching ears to hear what they wanted to hear. And they would go, they would even move sometimes across the state or to another state to go to a different minister and present their issue to him, hoping he would tell them what they wanted to know because the last one said not to do it that way. He said to do it this way. So they would shop for an answer. It's like, I need some shoes, so I'll go to Target, and then I'll go to Wally's, and then I'll go to the shoe paradise place, whatever it is, and I'll find what I want. So in answers to questions, they would shop, just like that. And then, ah, Here's the church I want to be in. This guy agrees with me. How about go to the book? Because often they knew the answer. They knew what it ought to be. And if the minister they went to gave them that answer from the Bible, 
It's move on to the next. Till they found what they wanted. People do that in the Protestant church. They don't like Methodist church, they go to Church of Christ. They don't like that, they go to the Amish or somewhere. <coughs> Until they find what they want. But he's laying it out here. And Christ would follow this basic advice in the New Testament because he set up apostles and evangelists and pastors and teachers to lead, guide, and direct the church. That's from God, not from men who set themselves up. But there are warnings in here about those who do set themselves up as teachers and leaders. Now, what someone said of someone here, when this rebellion here started, but you just don't understand him. He was not rebelling. He was trying to help, to assist. His way of assisting was to cut off all the lot leases and try to starve me out. Now, is that helping or hindering? Because he didn't trust me to do it right, those around him thought he was just trying to help. Okay, where does that go? Korah looked at Moses and said, Moses doesn't know how to lead us in the right way. I know a better way. I will help. I will take over and I will do it better than Moses is. Same exact attitude. Rebellion against Moses and rebellion against God for having put Moses there instead of Korah and others. But it wasn't just trying to help. Now, that's the way they would have looked at it. Do you think Moses says, I'm going to rebel against Moses and God and that's what I'm doing and I'm going to take over and do a better job? Now, that's not what Korah thought Korah was doing. Korah thought Korah was helping. And God looked at Moses, and God looked at Korah, and God said, I think I'll just open the ground up here. You get rid of Korah, man, woman, child, and animal, and this is going to stop. <laughs> and whoop, everybody stood back. Well, God sometimes answers, and it isn't always the answer we want. And sometimes if you go shopping ministers to find the answer you want, it's not going to turn out too well for you in the long run. It just won't. Uh, not that mistakes can't be made, and were. And Moses made a mistake. He didn't make a lot of mistakes daily. <laughs> but he did have good advice and counsel for the people in getting them to follow God instead of themselves. Uh, I will make them rulers over you, and you answered me, and said, the thing which you have spoken is good for us to do. We'll do this. We realize we have to stand in line a long time to talk to Moses. So it would be good to be able to have someone else that we could go to. So I took the chief of your tribes, wise men, and known and made them heads over your over you, Captains over thousands, captains over hundreds, captains over fifties, and captains over tens, and officers among your tribes. Now, they've had these divisions from a physical standpoint when they marched out of uh, Mithraim. They were lined up 
in the tens, hundreds, thousands, and came out marching in order, organized out of Egypt. Instead of just a mob of people walking across the desert, God had divided them up into groups. So, as they were out in the wilderness, those still remained, and he appointed from each captains of that many. So, the organizational structure was already there, but they were given more authority to counsel, to guide, to lead, instead of just, you pitch your tent here, kind of thing. And I charged your judges at that time. So, he raised them to the rank of judge instead of just leader of ten, saying, Hear these causes between your brethren, and judge righteously between every man and his brother and the stranger that is with him. It didn't matter who it was who came, you had to have even and fair judgment. Don't uh, show, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? prejudice one toward another, but fair judgment for everybody. Now, that's again in the book of James and through the New Testament, for that matter, is to judge righteously and not say to him who comes in in fine clothing and obviously a rich man, you sit up front here, oh, and you look awful, you sit in the back, uh, just because of their financial status or ability to show their wealth. You don't do that. You treat each person fairly and equitably, no matter their station in life. Don't show prejudice. Uh, and Christ said almost the same words. Even if you go to a banquet, sit down in the bottom chair, and if they want you up at the head table, they'll call you. Don't go to the head table thinking, I'm behind muckety-muck here, and then get kicked down to the bottom. That's far more difficult, swallowing vanity, ego, and so on as you go. So, we are to be humble and to be meek and not to be social climbers, if you will. Uh, we had a lot of that in the old worldwide church of God. People wanting, aspiring to be deacons or elders or ministers and so on, and polishing boots and shining shoes and doing all the things that they did in order to find the grace and favor and get promoted. In the corporate world, we call it ladder climbing. There's a lot of different names for it. Uh, never mind. There are a lot of them. You shall not respect persons in judgments, which is what I just said, but you shall hear the small as well as the great. Listen to everybody. doesn't matter their status. You shall not be afraid of the face of man, no matter what kind of person or how high they are in society. Cast that aside. For the judgment is God's, and the cause that is too hard for you, bring it to me and I will hear it. Let it come up through the ranks, and if it's a very difficult judgment to make, there seems to be right on both sides. It's hard to know which law that needs to be applied the most here. Uh, if it gets difficult and you shake your head and say, this is too much for me, kick it up the ladder. And finally, the hardest things go to the Supreme Court. <clears throat> that sounded funny. The Supreme Court, uh, Moses. And 
I need a drink of water. For the judgment is God's. And anybody who is in a position to make any decisions among people needs to be sure he is close to God. That starts on the level of husband to wife and wife to husband and parents to children. Starts on that level. Be sure you're close to God and the things you say to your wife are the things God would say to her. And be careful you don't say anything to her that God wouldn't say to her either. Very important. Because that's where judgment begins is between any two people, married or unmarried, workers together, whoever. Anytime there's two people, there's going to be, inevitably, variance of opinion. And those have to be settled kindly, lovingly, as much as possible. Uh, so, <clears throat> a judgment that is made needs to be made very carefully and be sure that that's the judgment God would make. Is that the judgment that God shows me as his child? Then that ought to be the judgment I use toward my children. Starts at that level and broadens on out throughout society so that it's love first to God and knowing what he wants and then giving what he wants to those whom we work with. And it isn't that a man is better than a woman, and she's a second-class citizen. That is not the case at all. It's that unless you have a certain amount of organization so that someone has the final say, it's just going to go round and round and round and round and never get settled. So you can have a variance in opinion, and you can discuss it, hopefully amicably and lovingly, and get all sides of it that you can consider, and then someone has to make a final decision if you can't totally agree, and God has put that on the husband. Okay, rather than fight interminably, the husband makes the decision. And the wife should submit to that, but she should have had her say. She should always be given her say, because her say might be just as important than yours. And believe it or not, it might be more important than yours. I said that with a little emphasis. Sometimes the wife has a better idea than the husband does. Maybe quite frequently. I have to sit here and say, I've had two wives in my life, and both of them, were smart enough, and I'm glad they were, and I wouldn't have married them if they weren't. They were smart enough to have good ideas. And I needed to listen. That was a man who was, by nature, more important and smarter than. I had to swallow some ego at times and recognize that they had a mind too, and it's just as good a mind as mine. And they can pray to God and have His Spirit just as much as I can. So who am I to lord over them and treat them as a second-class citizen or even inferior to me in any way because they're not inferior? Why in the world would I want to marry somebody inferior to me? 
But we marry them thinking that we're, oh, we're so lovey-dovey and equal. And then suddenly we rise up on our hind legs and think we're superior and that they ought to do everything we say in the way that we say it. Wrong, so wrong. Is Christ that way with you? He's going to live forever with 144,000 wives. That's a bunch. Spirit beings, but the analogy is there at least, of the relationship. And he doesn't want you there unless you are changed and become immortal and on the same plane and level he is. He does not want you, he does not want to have a wife that's inferior than him. He wants one just as good as he is. And that's why he's working with you and me to get our standards lifted up to that point. I was asked a question just yesterday. We start building the temple. Uh, do the women just have to cook and have traditional roles? No. Now, if you have a lot of people working, you're going to need a lot of cooks, and I'm sure there will be a kitchen crew. But is that the only thing that can be done? There are a lot of women who have a lot of capacities in a lot of different fields and things that they like to do. And some of them like to build. They like to make things, build things. So, if I go there to help build a temple, do I have to cook all the time? Can I lay some tile or do this or do that? Or, Well, if you're big enough to do it and you're qualified, go for it. Why not? It's not a matter of a man being the only one who knows how to do something and treating a woman as lesser than himself. Now, you know, one of his problems and the way men get that way is that they have feelings of inferiority. And do you know why men have feelings of inferiority? It's because they're inferior. We're inferior to God. We're inferior to elephants and snakes in some respects. We're certainly inferior in a lot of ways. You can't look at yourself and say, I'm perfect, can you? No. We all have to admit we have flaws and imperfections. So, in our vanity and ego and not liking to admit that or let anybody see it, we might be aware of it ourselves, but we don't want anyone else to see it. Hide from them. Don't let them know what I really am. You know, they might puke or they might throw up and never speak to you again if they really knew some of the stuff you think. So, let's not kid ourselves that we're perfect. And yet, as human beings, we don't want that to show. And when God came to Adam and Eve and says, what did you do? Oh, he did it. He did it. Everybody has to blame somebody else. It wasn't my fault. The woman you gave me. Really, it's your fault for giving me that woman. Why didn't he say, take her back? Well, he wanted her, but he wanted to blame her. So, he was willing to admit she was inferior, but not that he was. So, let's have a level playing field. Let's realize man and woman are both inferior, 
They're inferior to God. They're inferior to other, each other. And neither one of them is less than human or a second-class citizen or human being. They're both made by God with the characteristics of God and both have human nature, the same nature, selfish to the core. And let's recognize their intelligence, their abilities, and realize God gave us something very, very special. And when you treasure something and consider it very, very special, you're careful how you treat it. I see people with little lap dogs. And those little lap dogs are so special to them. Not particularly special to me. They're kind of yappy and they whatever. But to that person, that little lap dog is so special. And they give it special little treats to keep Petco in business. And they groom it, and they take care of it, and they set it right here, and they don't go anywhere without it. And don't say anything about it. Okay, you can cuss their kids, but don't say anything about that dog or that cat. It's special. Now, God says you're supposed to treat your mate that way, man or woman. And then a man is to love his wife as he does his own flesh. I am so careful with my flesh. When it's dirty, I wash it. When it's itchy, I scratch it. When it's hungry, I feed it. I just take such good care of it. Because other things hurt and aren't fun and are uncomfortable and all of those things. So God says, treat your wife the way you treat yourself. That's a tall order. That's like loving your neighbors yourself or loving God above everything. It's on that level. Be gentle, be kind, be loving, be attentive to your wife and the wife to her husband. That's what Ephesians 5 is all about. Explains both sides of that. And we can go over it a thousand times and still have braying men on their hind legs lording it over their wife. You can't say it too many times. I'm trying, but you can't. And even Moses said it here. We're getting bogged down. This is almost over with. We're not even through one chapter. This may last till January. But there's a lot in here. There's just a lot here. Before the feast, weeks before the feast, I was thinking, what should I do for sermons at the feast? I can't think of a thing. You know, Great big book with thousands and thousands of words, and I can't think of a thing to say. And then when you open the book and start reading it, there's thousands of things to say. But you've got to go to the book. What you come up with in your own head, who cares? What does the book say? And it's not just reading it word for word. Go to the book of Ezra. And it says they built a pulpit of wood and Ezra stood up on it and read the book and gave the meaning thereof or expounded and talked about and put it in ways that we can understand how to apply it. But we've had people in the church of God here in the end time over the decades who would say a preacher should never stand up on a podium, shouldn't be above the people, shouldn't have a pulpit because he's putting himself above the people. 
No, it's not in attitude or shouldn't be. But if you've got thousands of people out there and you're shorter and they can't see you from the behind, the back end of the crowd, then you need to get up high enough that they can at least see you. And maybe a microphone so they can at least hear you. So it's not about who is more important. It's a matter of how do we do this in such a way that everybody can hear and understand and be helped by it. That's all it's about. You can, you can put the rest of it there because you want to be just as high as they are, or higher. So you don't want them standing on a stage. Come on, how immature is that? No, you've got to be heard. That's the whole point. Not put yourself above, which shouldn't be done. It should be done in humility and meekness and recognizing your own faults. But you're still there as a teacher that God appointed, and you better go do it regardless and do it the best you can God's way. That's all it amounts to. It reminds me, though, of a story I saw in a, an old movie of these two guys sitting in barber chairs. I think I've mentioned it before. And it was Hitler and Mussolini. And they were controlled down here by these chairs. And Hitler would look at Mussolini and he'd crank his up a notch. Get a little higher. Mussolini would look back over at Hitler and he'd crank his up a notch. Get a little higher. And they went up like this till they both reached the top of the chair's capacity and kind of the end of the skit, but that's the way people do. They try to jack themselves up and appear more important or smarter than or whatever each other. And that's a lesson in futility and vanity and ego. We are what we are before God. And when we try to impress each other about how much better we are than they are, we're all in the wrong end of the ballpark. Just are. So he's making sure we understand. So make sure the judgment is God's. Between any level, husband and wife, children, brethren, everywhere. Verse 19, And when we departed from Horeb, we went through all that great and terrible wilderness, which you saw by the way of the mountain of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. He led them with the cloud and the fire. It will be mentioned here. Behold, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it, as the Lord God of your fathers has said to you. <coughs> Fear not. Neither be discouraged. So he's reminding them how people feared the Egyptians. They feared the Red Sea. They feared thirst and starvation instead of God, who was delivering them as good as you can and giving them everything they needed, but it wasn't by any means enough. We have a lot of blessings from God. But is it enough? Are we so thankful every day, so grateful to God for what He does give us that we don't have time to be discouraged for what He hasn't given us? Count your many curses, name them one by... No. 
Count your many blessings, name them one by one. See what God has done. Don't gripe about what he hasn't done. <laughs> See, that was the Israelites' problem. They kept forgetting what God had done and griping about what he hadn't done. Well, that's all he's saying to them here. Count your many blessings. Fear not, neither be discouraged. Now, if you flip on forward, you'll find out when they went in with Joshua where they feared and got discouraged. They're just the opposite of what Moses is trying to tell them here. And you came near to me, every one of you, as a congregation, and said, We will send men before us, and they'll search us out the land, and will bring us word again by what way we must go, or go up, and into what cities we shall come. We're going to send men out there to check this all out, and we're going to obey you, and we're not going to fear, and we're not going to be discouraged. We'll check it out and decide where to go, and then we're going to go. That was your attitude at that point. And the saying pleased me well. Moses says, I like that idea. Check it out, and then let's go for it. Get her done. And I took twelve men of you, one of a tribe, and they turned and went up into the mountain and came under the valley of Eshcol and searched it out. And they took of the fruit of the land in their hands. Remember how they had to haul the grapes out on poles because they were too big for them to carry and all that back there? And brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land. Look at these grapes which the Lord our God does give us. Notwithstanding all this evidence, beautiful big peaches, grapes on such... Uh, I'm getting right here to think of words anymore. What's wrong with me? You need to think about me. I'm getting... I've been having a real serious problem with dropsy and heart trouble. Now, those are both difficult problems to deal with. I drop down and I don't have the heart to get up. <laughs> That's how serious it is. <clears throat> and I can't think of words sometimes. Anyway, uh, they brought back evidence of wonderful things. Wow. Impressive. Notwithstanding, you would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the eternal your God. So God told you, go into the land. I'll conquer it for you. You don't have to worry about it. Just wait and see what I do to Jericho. Wow. Bang. The walls all fall down and there's everybody waiting to be killed. Pretty impressive for nearly a day. People are something, aren't we? Oh, I meant they, not us. It just, just, was just them. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Eternal hated us, He has brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Same old thing they'd said this side the Red Sea. Uh, I don't see any water. Where's the water? You brought us out here to destroy us. I mean, it was on their lips right now. And here, they see all this huge pile of fruit come out of that land, and they say, oh, we don't want to go in there. They're going to kill us. You brought us out here to the land of the Amorites and Canaan to kill us. 
You didn't just bring us across the Red Sea to kill us. These were the kids of the people who had said the Red Sea, you brought us to kill us. Now they're saying you brought us into this land to kill us. Like father, like son. You know, as a, I guess as a teenager, I determined somewhere along in my life that I would conduct my life in such a way that I would do a better job as a human being than my father had. I don't know if that ever showed or not, probably not, but I thought it would be, and I never made it. But then I heard my son one day say, I made up my mind as a teenager, I was going to be better than my father was. I said, yeah, and look at you. <laughs> I can't say that. Because we're all human, generation to generation, and that, so far, never changes. It will soon, but it hasn't so far. So we got the same thing with the kids we had with the parents. You murmured your tents. God, you brought us here to destroy us. Whither, how shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we, and the cities are great and walled up to heaven, and moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakims there. The Anakims were giants. We'll see that. Some of them were 12, 13 feet tall. So they looked at these huge greats, and they looked at these huge people, and said, God can't win over the huge people. Greats are nice, but uh-uh. You brought us here to die. It's just so obvious. Can't you see that, Moses? Can't you see that, God? You brought us out here to die. Have you ever thought of that? I don't think God thought that. I don't think it ever went through his mind that that's what he'd done. But they decided in their mind that's what he had done. So they griped and carped and complained. We're not supposed to do that. Right? Enough for today. <laughs>